0: The process is still the same, and it's still about getting the ingredients you need and putting them in the right order to tell the best story and the most emotional story that that you can.
1: Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. Growing up in a blue-collar town on the outskirts of Boston, Michael Talazian's love of Larry Bird and the arts helped him get his big break at NBA Entertainment in the early 90s. After getting his master's at USC Film School, Talazian jumped back into the world of sports television, directing what is hailed as one of the best 30 for 30s of all time, Once Brothers, and has gone on to be a top creative executive at the Pac-12 Network and Fox Sports.
2: Michael details how a civil war destroyed the once-brotherly relationship between Drajan Petrovic and Vladi Divac. It's impressive to find out how he was able to get Vladi and Drajan's family to be so open and honest. We then transition you to a story you may not have ever heard of. ball. Well, let's just say Michael went to San Quentin Prison and filmed the story of convicts who earned the right to hoop first members of the Golden State Warriors staff. Yeah, I simplified it, but it's much deeper than that, and we get to hear all about it on this episode of Beyond the
1: Lens. Today, we welcome someone who has done it at its highest level on both sides of the aisle. As a filmmaker and as a network executive, we welcome Michael Talesian to Beyond the Lens. Michael.
0: Hey, Seth, AJ. Good to see you guys. Excited to be on, talk some sports and TV and all that good stuff.
2: You got that right, Michael. You've done a little bit of everything, so I'm looking forward to digging into the
0: conversation. Fantastic. I'm an open book. <laughs>
1: so Michael we'd like to break the podcast into three acts with the first act being your story where did you grow up and where did your love of sports and storytelling start
0: yeah I grew up in watertown Massachusetts just west of Boston watertown's super very working class ethnic town I'm Armenian tons of Armenians on the east side Armenian churches Armenian markets went to public high school and played sports since I was a kid and obviously you know this was in the 80s and so So, you had such rich sports tradition in Boston. You know, with the Red Sox, they still hadn't won in a long time when I was a kid. So, that was always a storyline. But remember going to Fenway and the Bruins were always good, and then obviously the Celtics when the Larry Bird era really captured my whole imagination during that whole stretch. And even the Patriots, they were terrible when I was a kid, but I I remember going to those games. And so since then, Boston sports have been, you know, it's been the glory days with the Patriots and the Red Sox and even the Celtics. And as a kid, you know, playing street hockey on my street It was a wave of young kids. Kelly's next door had eight kids and all the other kids on our neighborhood. And we would play street hockey and basketball and wiffle ball. And we would get on our bikes and we'd ride across town to the other side of town or the town over and challenge them. And a lot of those fun things that I I don't know if kids do so much these days, but I really enjoyed growing up in that era. I want to
2: ask you how you transitioned from that childhood to Cornell University, where you studied economics. And then get me to where you got into film.
0: Growing up. I was always creative. I was always drawing, doing art, writing stories. Even in high school, I remember shooting a video. It was like a dunk contest I had did with my friends. We went to the park where they had eight-foot rims, and uh, we did a little dunk contest. And I edit that together. And so I was always creative. But you know, my dad grew up in the Depression. He had a pretty rough life with you know his dad passing away and having to take care of his mom and his sisters and working from a very young age. So he was a very practical guy. So he had me cutting grass and doing paper routes and shoveling snow and you know I was always had these two kind of Mm -hmm. paths the creative artist and then this practical person and when I went to Cornell I was an economics major but all my minors were in like creative writing acting film history so when I was graduating I was going down to New York to interview with investment banks Wall Street you know make a lot of money work hard my heart really wasn't in it and so I reached out to a friend of mine who I had done an internship one summer in boston at the pbs station wgbh and i helped him on a project it was actually about the armenian genocide and that storyline and when i was graduated Cornell I said hey man I'm going to New York for interviews do you know anyone in TV sports and he just happened to know have a friend at NBA Entertainment which at the time was very small division of the NBA they were doing just really home videos championship tapes things like that I love this game NBA is fantastic uh, spots if you remember those oh and the so, superstars um, video I, I,
2: still, I had the superstars yeah, video yeah. on VHS I had it awesome
0: yeah I, I worked on some of those so I went in and had an informational interview and they just happened to have a opening for a PA you know like a logger pa i remember in the interview they asked me to to name the starting five of the dallas mavericks and uh, i think i got three of them uh, but uh, <laughs> rolando blackman know, Roland, yeah rolando blackman brad davis um, Marco
2: agguire that's the only one i would have been able to give you Mark,
0: yeah yeah and so instead of taking you know a forty thousand dollar a year job on wall street you know i took a seventeen thousand dollar a year job and found a way to to move down there in this tiny, crummy apartment with a couple other friends. And, you know, I was working for the NBA, and my job was as a logger. I got to log Celtics, Hawks, Supersonics, and I would just sit there with three quarter inch tape betas, pop them in and just log the games and the highlights. And then I saw the process, right? I saw how my log led to the producer finding the highlight, Mm -hmm. which he then the editor put into the piece and into the final. So I really learned to take whatever natural creative abilities I had and hone them into seeing how the whole process works. Just cause I logged that shot and described it a certain way, it led to it being in a piece and making the piece better. And then the producer saying, Hey Mike, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to find that shot. And then this was in the nineties at the NBA. So, you know, Michael Jordan, the Bulls were taken off, you still have the Celtics and the Pistons and the Lakers, and NBA Entertainment just exploded, and that's when they had NBA Inside Stuff. In the meantime, I taught myself how to edit, I would show my pieces to the producers, and they'd be like, wow, that's really good, Mike, and then when Inside Stuff started, I convinced them to let me go out and produce a feature, it was on Larry Johnson, I remember, when he was coming nice. into the draft. Grandmama. Grandmama, and then what was great about Inside Stuff, it was a weekly show, mm-hmm. so every week I was doing a feature, I was going on the road, I was cutting jam session, I was cut and rewind. And like each week I would get better and better and better. And you know, it was just a great crash course in sports and basketball and production. Some of those friends and colleagues I made during those years are some of my best friends to today and have led to other projects.
2: I wanna take you back for a second. You mentioned that your father wanted you to go in one direction. You went in a mm-hmm. different direction. What was that like for you? Did he embrace eventually that NBA? Cause that's hard, right? You gotta make that yeah. decision and you gotta go against what they think is the you best know, decision
0: for you. A lot of the things he had to do in his life, he fought in World War II, you know, he had no choice. He had to make the best with what he was given, but he was a stickler with jobs and sending thank you notes and following up and networking. So all that came through, but you know, during that critical point, my career, whether to go into to business at Wall Street, he was supportive. He saw that I had some talent and he said, Look, if you really want to go this route and you love it, you know, I support you and the money will come and all that. So while he probably might have gone a different route or in his gut would have said hey go go for the wall street thing it's business it's more predictable it's more secure than television he had faith in me and uh, supported me you know he wasn't going to be sending me any money per se but he's like (laughs) all right if you can swing it you want to live that way and sacrifice in the short term and then ultimately when i started to have some success and he saw the pieces i worked on he was super happy for me and he was very proud and would tell everybody did you see michael's name at the end on the credits and and all that so hopefully i can be that way with my my kids as well
1: how did you make the decision to step back and go to usc film school
0: I had progressed from being a logger PA, through an editor, AP. I was already up to producer level in a short time, and the NBA was just humming. And it was tough because I said, hey, I could stay here and maybe work here for the, my whole career. Things are only getting bigger and bigger, and the projects are expanding. You know, I wanted to learn how to tell other stories. I wanted to learn how to write screenplays and tell fictional films and immerse myself in film history and, and really just expand as a storyteller. I wanted to see how it was done and, and try to do it at one of the best schools that you can do it in. And so I applied to a few film schools and I actually was accepted to USC off the wait list. I was wait listed, But then then I got in, even though I just paid off my student loans. From <laughs> USC, uh, I don't regret it because I had worked in the business. So I was really focused with what I wanted. So I, when I went there, as for as a grad student, I feel like I really got the most out of it. I've watched films I never would have watched and read screenplays and heard speakers and made countless short films. I mean, when I was there, we were still shooting on Super 8 and editing splicing the film together on a reel, taping it, putting it on a projector. Before I graduated, though, that's when the AVIDs came in and nonlinear editing. So I was right there on the cusp. But it was a great way to learn because when you have to shoot film, it's so hard to change it. You're like, okay, when I go out to shoot, I'm going to really have my shit together as far as my shot list, my questions. I want to come back and have what I need to cut it and not have to re-edit it over and over and try to make it work in post. Like being an editor and especially learning that way, it's really great training because as editors, when stuff comes back and they didn't get the cutaways or they didn't get the question or what you needed, it's very frustrating. So coming up as an editor and then going to film school and and having to do that process, it really, I feel, prepared me to become a producer and a director and working in the field. It was tedious at the time, but it it was great to have to learn that way.
2: You speak a CS language, editing and work your way up.
1: I started tape to tape, so I kinda I understand yeah, that.
2: Very similar.
0: So you would dump That's it a, off.
1: If you wanted to do a dissolve, you had to lay an A B roll it and you no, had to go back were- and re edit that. It was a the disaster. Kids-
0: the kids watching this, hopefully, there's some watching this. They'll be like, "What the hell are you guys talking about?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> I tell you what, though, a lot of what you talk about is just the root of it, though. When you're talking about logging and then learning from your logging, learning from those things, and then coming back and applying it, we see that all the time. Like that hasn't changed. Like the technology's right. changed, but the the foundation of it hasn't changed.
0: Not at all. The process is still the same, and it's still about getting the ingredients you need and putting them in the right order to tell the best story and the most emotional story that that you can.
2: So, walk us in your story to the next step, or maybe I don't know if it was the next step or not, but next thing I know, you're doing AN1 mixtapes.
0: Where'd you go from (laughs) from
2: USC to AN1? Like, how was the AN1 process? Like, we all loved AN1, we were going crazy over Mm AN1. So, walk us into that.
0: So, I finished USC. I did a thesis film that had done well, it was nominated for a Student Academy Award. And I stayed in LA a little bit, met some agents, started writing screenplays and trying to get that going. But that's a long, slow process. And in the meantime, a lot of my old contacts from the NBA and other folks I had worked with were like, hey, Mike, could you come produce this? Could you come direct this? Could you you know, work on this project? So I was running out of money. You know, I had all these student loans and things. So I said, oh, what the hell? So I went back to New York, started kind of my own little production company and started freelancing for lots of folks. I mentioned Mike Antonoro, He at the time was at N1, and they had come up with this whole mixtape idea where they took these streetball legends that were playing at New York and Philly and all over and came up with this mixtape tour. And then they sold that show. It became a series on ESPN, that Streetball series. I worked with John Hawk. John Hawk is another guy I'm sure you know, was kind of spearheading that with An one. I worked on the that that series, mostly editing, um, a little bit of producing and editing. You know, I loved. I love basketball, that whole streetball world and the razzle dazzle and the energy parks, Dykeman and Rucker and Kingdom. And the mm-hmm. M1 guys got a bus and they traveled to Detroit and down to Atlanta and all around and challenged the local guys and pickup guys and the professor and main event, skip to my loo and all those guys. It was awesome. You're just cutting unbelievable highlights. I don't even know if we cleared the music for those things. We just pick, <laughs> we would just pick the hottest rap and hip-hop it was just a super cool event and world and i was living in new york at the time and it was just like a kid in the candy store being able to work on that that must have been a special experience (laughs) yeah and the crazy stories i mean i can't remember any specific ones i just remember shaking my head when they would come back from the road and you know all the madness with being on the road the barnstorming with uh with those guys like you said the combination
2: of the music and the basketball and everything at that same time just kind of exploded in the city
0: (laughs) You know, and it's funny because you look at like TikTok now and Instagram and it has some of that viral crazy. Did you see that move? That guy falling on his face? You know, that was like 20, 25. 20 years ago. You know, hey. but it was just on these VHSs that would get dubbed and sent around. So it was a precursor, but still had those same kind of shake your head kind of vibes that are so prevalent now on social media.
1: Yeah, that was special when the professor got on the bus, It seemed yeah. like things changed. I love the Escalade, yeah. Mark Jackson's brother.
0: I mean, he probably pushed 400 pounds and I remember he could dunk and it just goes to show too, like casting right? you know, just having the right combination of characters. And they had such a mix of personalities, shapes, sizes, colors that I think that was part of the success too. You
1: definitely have had a storied career and mm-hmm. you've been a you know prolific independent filmmaker, but then you became an executive as well on the network level, starting at the Pac-12 network. Mm-hmm. How did that happen and why did you make that decision?
0: From 2000 to 2000, maybe twelve was a freelance, independent producer, editor, director, had my own little production company and I would staff up as I needed to. You know, I worked for all the leagues, NHL, MLB, NBA Entertainment. I did a 30 for 30 with the NBA and ESPN. I worked for HBO Real Sports. I did a documentary for Mandalay on, on Kentucky basketball. But you know, you know, when you're doing the freelance gig between every great project, you know, you gotta scrape a little bit and, and find that job just to pay the bills and you know, that freelance life Lifestyle was tough because you didn't know necessarily what your next job was going to be, what your rate was going to be. My wife was from the Bay Area, and, and you know, I said, well, maybe I should start looking at some staff jobs just to get a little bit more consistency, if you will. And at the time, the Pac 12 network had just launched. I was in San Francisco, not far from where my wife went to high school and her parents lived. And I had some connections there, and I reached out and I was able to get a staff job overseeing all their original content, historical documentaries, all access series. You know, when it's working with stamps and Cal and UCLA and Arizona and working with student athletes, which was eye-opening and and really rewarding, gymnastics and volleyball and all these other sports beyond football and basketball. So I dove into that. But I think that decision was fueled a lot by just the practicality of of our our industry and balancing your life and family with the creative pursuits. Now, you you touched on, and I'm
2: going to go back out of the sequential order, just having a conversation Mm -hmm. here, but you talked on some of the athletes you worked with. Now, did you work with Magic and Bird? Like, you can't just gloss that over. What kind of work? No. What, what did you do with those kind of, what was that like? If
0: it wasn't my first year. It was my sec, probably my second year at the NBA. We were doing a Larry Bird home video. Larry Legend home video and me as a kid, a Boston fan, I was like, I got to get on this. And so Jim Potteritz is a good friend and one producer. He was the main producer on it. They took me on as a PA and I got to go to French Lick, Indiana and meet Larry and go to his house and see him cutting the grass with a beer in his hand. And, you know, <laughs> like all those things you hear about were true. And uh, I went to Terre Haute where he played college ball. And so that was just one of those things when you get in this business, sometimes you're fortunate enough to, to, to do. And but then again, I work with Magic, Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan, you know, during that pre film school years and then after when I came back to work at the NBA after film school, working with all those guys. I mean, it was great. But again, each of these guys have different personalities, and you can catch them in different moods on that day of shooting, as you know. I think one thing that's made me successful is I think I'm pretty good at quickly identifying, reading body language, and seeing where people are at, and then breaking the ice a little bit and getting people comfortable, whether it's a big, big big-name star or whether it's somebody's mom that we're interviewing. like It was fantastic to to meet some of those guys and, and see what they the dedication that they took in their craft to be successful athletes and try to apply those standards to what I was doing.
1: That's awesome. I I think we all remember those videos Seeing bird and the wooden hoop
0: and yeah, the barn. Up, up the against the thing. barn, yeah. Yeah, and all those Michael Jordan home videos, you know, come fly with me and Michael Jordan's playground and when one he did with Michael Jackson. And oh, I think there was probably six of those home videos, airtime. So I was around for a lot of those and worked on a yeah, lot cool. of those.
1: So we're gonna get into our second act and talk about two of your amazing documentaries. We'll talk about Q-Ball, which aired on Fox Sports. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Once Brothers in the 90s, a Yugoslavian civil war that fractured not only a country, but the friendship between two of their biggest basketball stars, Drazen Petrovich and Vlade Divac. Documentary made in 2010 and one of the best 30 for 30s ever. How did this documentary come about and how did you get involved?
0: I had finished film school. I was in New York, I was freelancing. I was doing a lot of stuff for the NBA. I had done a Celtics project for them. And I was working on a few other things when the whole 30 for 30 project from ESPN and Bill Simmons had kind of launched. And at the time ESPN was reaching out to all the leagues because they knew smartly that the leagues owned all the footage. They had come to the NBA with a few ideas, dream team, this, that. And so the NBA was kicking around some projects and the NBA had started doing some initial shooting on a Drazen Petrovic project. It wasn't really fully developed. They just were starting to shoot a few things. And, you know, they said, hey, ESPN, what about like Draza Petrovic? ESPN was like, yeah, you know, kind of interesting, his story, obviously. And I was just there at the time and was kind of spitballing with Deon Kokoros and some of the other guys there. And previously I had worked on a special, I think it was for NBC on The Kings. So this was when the Sacramento Kings had Vlade Divac and White Chocolate and Chris Webber. So I had gotten to know those guys and gotten to know Vlade. I had remembered in the 90s, the NBA had done a feature. It was maybe about a seven-minute feature on Yugoslavia and how the Civil War broke out and had kind of set the stage about Drazen and vlade and tony kukoc were in it and it kind of touched on the fracturing of that country and of those relationships and it was a really good feature and i had always remembered it but i always thought hey man there's more to this story and so you know talking to, to the nba and the espn i said hey instead of just doing draws, and what if we did it on that team and told it through this story of this relationship between these two guys one serbian one croatian who grew grown up as comrades in yugoslavia one country and played together and had this generation of unbelievable players that had played together since they were kids and um, had beaten the United States in the world championships. What if we told the story of friendship torn apart by war? It just seemed like such a powerful, almost like a Hollywood type of movie. I put a treatment together and the NBA liked it. They shared it with Bill Simmons and Connor Shell, and all the folks over there. They signed on. And then this is where my film school came into handy. I actually wrote like a script, which had dialogue and stuff, but it was just an idea of how this thing could play out. We presented that with Vladi and, and part of that that script and that story was not only to sit down Vladi for a three hour interview. I wanted to go and retrace the steps of his life and go on this journey to try to make peace with what happened. And Vladi such a good guy. He's like, you know, come to Serbia, I'll take you everywhere. And so I knew I had all the beats to the story where I could have these kind of verite moments. That we could film of his journey, but then flash back and show all the archival and all the things that happened. You know, it started with, I, th- I think, a great idea and then the support of, of the network and then the support of the subjects, both Vlade and also Drazen's family, his mother and his brother were completely on board. So then the pressure was really on because I was like, man, I, I got a great story and I got all the cooperation i don't want to f- this up you know <laughs> i have all the ingredients and fortunately it turned out well and that film was in 2010 i still get emails from people to this day from croatia and serbia and overseas history teachers telling me that they use that film to teach about you know international studies and about nationalism and civil war they use basketball in that story to get the kids interested you know that's been so rewarding to have something that you do continue to have impact and for people that grew up in Yugoslavia. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when the civil war happened. People's lives were impacted on both sides. For them to reach out to me and say that these guys were their heroes and they lost loved ones in the war. And it was just an amazing project. I want
2: to dive into it just a little bit deeper and get to the, you know, one, how you were able to tell a balanced story. You know, it felt like you had to really try to tell the Croatian side and tell the Serbian side and not just because you have Vlade, not just focus on Vlade. So the challenge of that. And then I want you to dive into the flag story. I felt like Mm -hmm. that was such a monumental moment. You only had like one angle of it, right? So it's hard to be able to show Mm -hmm. all the things that happened. Can you walk us into that process?
0: I'm a little bit of a history buff, but I didn't know that much about Yugoslavia and the history of that area. And it goes way, way back years. You know, you talk about Israel and Palestine and all the back and forth and the conflict, but like the Balkans and and Yugoslavia and Croatia, like stuff goes back pre-World War I, and there's a lot of bad blood there. But what we did was we found a history professor at Columbia University, and we had him come to the MBA. He gave us like a history lesson on the history of that region and some of the different things that have happened and really got to understand why things unraveled the way they did. Drazen had passed away, so it was tough. And I really wanted to tell it from Vlade's, his personal story. Try to tell a, a balanced feature, but still to make it really about vlade's personal piece because i knew he was going to be the central character and the narrator but through learning about the history and making sure i had voices that were from all sides i've gotten some criticism it's too from Vladi's point of view you don't so you you know you can't make everybody happy but i really wanted to tell a personal story but also be true to what i understood as what happened you know you had these countries that were enemies for many years but then under communism they all got brought together under the flag of yugoslavia and for and andrasin they were kids. They grew up only knowing Yugoslavia. And it was like coming from the north or the south. You have your differences, but you're all in the same country. And their national teams took kids from all these regions and put them together. They saw each other as just kids who love basketball, not Croatian or Serbian. And so all those barriers broke down. And that's like the great thing of sports, how it can kind of break down some of those things. And then they they came and they grew together and they reached success. And then and Drazen became really among the first two, along with Marshall Onus, to come over and get drafted and prove that Europeans weren't soft, that they could come and play in the NBA. And just when they had reached their dream as friends, the war broke out and the pressures from home forced them apart. Even if they had wanted to stay close, they would have gotten so much heat if they were seen together on TV. And so it was just such a tragedy of, of how the war pulled them apart. And it was, it was sad. And then obviously Drazen passed away. And so this whole idea of Vlade trying to make peace with some of those things, he was never able to talk to Drazen face-to-face and clear the air. That was really the core of the story. Um, what was the second part of your... I oh, was, I was curious flag. about
2: the flag story. Yeah, because it's the, it, it yeah. became such an important piece of, of the movie, of the story, actually.
0: When we started, I didn't even know about the flag. I didn't know there was this specific incident that sparked the whole unraveling of their friendship. I think it was in some of my research, I read about it. And then in some of the interviews, they started to talk about it and we were able to find that game. And then it was one of those unbelievable feelings that you have as a filmmaker, when you get some of this footage and then you see, and you have the Mm -hmm. remote control and you're like, wait a minute, there's the fans coming onto the field. There's the Croatian flag coming on and there's Vlade grabbing it, you know, and pulling it away. I was like, holy crap, because then when you have the interview and then you have the footage to show it, I was was like unbelievable. And then we were able to find some photographs, some still photographs that some photographers over there had taken of literally Vlade with the flag and the fan that had it. Then you just sit back and say, okay, what music am I going to use for this? Like, (laughs) how am I? what You know what? We got something. We got something. Yeah. Am I going to start with the photos? Am I going to? play it a second time. Similarly, like NBA Entertainment, they had such a rich archive that there's another scene where Vlade had started playing for the Lakers. He barely spoke English and they were shooting this kind of corny commercial for like NBA Authentics. Like during a break, they're like eating some snacks and and they're just shooting the shit and, and Magic's like, hey man, what's up with Drazen? Like he's up in Portland. He's not really, what's going on? And Vlade's in broken English saying, oh, he he's not playing. He's depressed. You know, he was this larger-than-life superstar god in Europe. And now he's sitting on the bench behind Danny Ainge and Clyde Drexler and those guys, and he's frustrated. And normally the camera guy would put his camera down and be eating his lunch, and he's shooting this off-camera. And they had it. That's just another example of finding those gems and learning when you think it might be nothing. It's an
1: awesome feeling, finding those Pieces of gold, as we like to call them. But AJ and I always talk about sports documentaries, and we say we want to learn something new from a sports documentary. Mm. That's what makes a sports documentary great, is that we want to learn something new. And I think that this film epitomizes that. I didn't know about this story. I'm a big sports fan. I didn't know about this story, so for me to watch this, it was amazing and very enlightening. Right. I wanted to ask, Vlade seemed like such a cool dude. What was it like traveling with him back to Serbia?
0: It was a trip, man. I mean, you're, Serbia is like, it's come a long way, but at the time it was still like the elements of of communism and Yugoslavia and the, kind of the black market. I mean, he tells a funny story in the film. He's like, when he got to LA, he was like, oh my God, like the chocolates. all <laughs> so much selection. Like you could get yeah. this, that, and this candy. He goes, he goes, in Yugoslavia, you had chocolate. There was chocolate and chocolate <laughs> with nuts. It was chocolate. Here you have the Twix and Snickers and this <laughs> and that. And so when we went over there, it still was some of that, but Vlade... And Peja, who we worked with, was like, hey, Vlade, can we do this? Kind of thought, like, we need a permit. We, ah, yeah, no problem, no problem. That was their answer <laughs> to everything. No problem. So, you know, Vlade, he's like, just follow us. He jumped in his car and we were driving and snowing. And one time he almost skidded off the road and got in a <laughs> horrible car accident, like, you know, you know, Vlade Divac gets in a horrible car accident because of this film, you know? But we would stop at a random restaurant and you'd walk in and it would be like, ah, oh, they'd be bringing out the booze. Vlade <laughs> was the man, you know, there. And it was like being with the king. It was awesome. And, you know, He's smoking butts and the people were so warm and like, he's a legend there. And so it was a part of the world I, I had never been maybe to this day wouldn't have gone to. And so just to see the history there and how much basketball is loved and how much Vlade was loved. And like I said, he was so amenable. Loved his country, you know, Yugoslavia and Croatia. And I think through all the strife and pain, he still loves the people there. And this film was almost an excuse for him to talk about some things and to see some people that he had maybe put off or was uncomfortable dealing with. And a weird part of him was using this film to kind of visit some of those feelings and some of those ghosts from the past and kind of make peace and move forward. I don't know for sure, but I did get that feeling that there was a weight lifted in some way going through this process and going back to Croatia, visiting Drazen's family and mom, going to the grave. Like it wasn't just TV movie stuff, it was like real.
2: I was going to ask you that how how hard or challenging it felt like once he walked into Croatia or once you guys drove across was was a great scene where you showed people looking at his idea yeah the border yeah. patrol and going across like and then meeting his mom like to me that was such a powerful part of the movie and it was great that you guys were able to do that what was that like
0: I never worked for like sixty minutes or something where you know he's like hitting cameras and this wasn't that but I did want to get some that raw kind of reaction. The tension, even to this day, but then was still strong between Croatia and Serbia. And they're only like three hours apart. Belgrade and Zagreb. To have Vladi willing to go there and then to, to go through the border and see him get recognized and get kind of the stink eye and then walk around Zagreb. Some people welcomed him with open arms and other people had some Harsh things to say, bitterness there. Not so different than what's going on in our country now with the two sides of things and the nationalism there. Vladi had known Drazen's mom when they were kids, right? When they had played together on the national teams. Then when the war broke out and things were torn apart, there was some uncomfortableness there. And Vladi knew Drazen's brother too. He had played basketball with Drazen's brother. I think, again, it was kind of awkward, but Drazen's brother and especially the mom, Are so passionate about Drazen. The love and the, almost the worship that Drazen's mom had for her son. It's like on another level. I mean, Drazen was like Elvis over there, statues and, and museums. And the mom drove Drazen's car to this day, I think. Drazen's little VW bug, she still drives it. His room hasn't been touched since he was a kid. Like they just revered him in that country and his mom. And so we went to see them and visit in the house and to see his mom wearing a charm with Drazen's picture in it. Um, it was emotional. They reminisced about the good days, and they unspokenly said, we have our differences, but we understand why things happen. We're going to put that behind us and remember the good and share these great stories of Drazen and Vlade and that great team and celebrate them. So I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but it was powerful. And, and you know, in my films, I really try to bring emotion to all my films. I want you to get that lump in your throat. If you're watching with your wife, I want you to have to look away and like fake (laughs) that you got something in your eye. You know, those are the stories that stay with you. I mean, we've all seen great cinematic films and beautiful and slick, but it's kind of eye candy. And, and that stuff kind of just like sugar just kind of dissolves and doesn't stay with you. But when you can get people emotional, and I don't necessarily mean the subjects, you know, we've all done interviews. Oh, they cried in the interview. Like, oh yeah, we got it. They cried like, okay, if that comes great, but I'm talking more about getting them to stop that motion of the popcorn to the mouth. Obviously, in Once Brothers, that was really a huge part of the film. And you know, different stories, you can't force it, but I always try to tap into to the emotional part of it.
1: Definitely. And I think one scene that stood out to me was when the mom said that the citizens told her that Drazen wasn't, her son, he was Croatia's son. And then you cut to the brother. It almost seemed like it was off camera. Like the camera just turned on and was kind of out of focus and blurry. And then the brother starts talking about the country thinks Drosin's their child and yeah. not ours. And not my brother, but their brother. And that was that was heavy. Was that something that yeah. was being talked about off camera?
0: Yeah, I mean, that wasn't planned. So the mom only spoke Croatian. So I would ask questions and then the brother was just off. To my right. He wasn't on camera. He would translate my question to the mom. The mom would answer to me in Croatian. And then the brother would give me a, you know, synopsis of what the mom said if I wanted to follow up. We had the main camera angle. And then I want to give props to my co-producer, Zach Levitt, who was shooting the other angle. We had a second angle on the mom. What happened was I asked this question. The mom told that story about the stranger coming up to her and saying that Drazen's not just your son, he's all of our sons. She got choked up and I heard like a little sob off to my right. And then I saw the mom glance over at her other son. Fortunately, Zach was quick thinking enough to pan off of the mom to the brother who wasn't lit. He was just translating. The mom is like a rock. So her emotions, she was able for the most part to keep intact. But this story really hit Drazen's brother. And he got very emotional and we were just able to capture that. So, again, that's just I don't want to call it luck because it's kind of a sad thing, but fortunate as storytellers to capture that. But again, you have to make your own luck. We had a second camera. We had someone working that camera that had the right instincts to pan over. All that plays into filmmaking and storytelling.
2: Big props to Zach. He's a guest of the show. Big props to Zach. We were having him on soon, so we were just talking to him. He going to talk to us about the Dream Team.
0: Zach and I worked together on a lot of projects, and he went on to do some great films for NBA Entertainment, and now he's doing some great podcast stuff. He's a really talented storyteller yeah. as well.
1: Once, brothers, felt like your Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've been chasing it for the last right. 11 years kind of. or whatever it's been.
0: I'm sure you guys have had those projects where it's just that everything comes together and it turns out great and it makes an impact on people. And then you're like, OK, you know, it sets the bar and it's hard to repeat that. I've worked on some other great, great stuff and I learned a lot. So you just keep telling stories, whatever the subject is, just try to make it as great as they can be. And hopefully you get a couple more of those before you hang it up.
1: Absolutely. Want to get into Q-Ball, which chronicles the inspirational story of San Quentin Prison's rehabilitative basketball program. How did this film come about and how did you get started on it?
0: As I said, I had moved out to the Bay Area. I was working at the Pac-12 Network. Where we live, if we're going over to Marin County or Napa, I live on the East Bay You go over the Richmond Bridge, and right there is San Quentin State Prison. And I was like, first time, I was like, holy shit, that's San Quentin, right? I mean, we have all heard about San Quentin and all these crazy stories. And so I would drive by that often. I was like, man, I wonder what it's like in there. I wonder what life is like. Jordan Debris has a great production company here. He was telling me that he had gone in and that they have all these sports programs. And he had shot a short feature for, I think it was the New York Times on the baseball team. I was like, dude, really? Like what else? I'm like, oh yeah, they have basketball and this and that. And then I had read an article, I think it was in USA Today about how the Golden State Warriors would go to San Quentin once a year, coaches, front office staff, and some players would go in. The players couldn't play in the game, but they would watch. And then the, the coaches like Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr and assistant coaches would go and they would play a pickup game with the inmates in San Quentin in the yard. All right, there's there's something here, right? Uh, you know, sports as rehabilitation, Golden State Warriors, world champs, going into this infamous prison. So we were able to reach out to their officials there and tell them kind of what we wanted to do. I went in with Jordan and film crew and we, we shot maybe two days, did some interviews, shot those guys practicing and playing. And then I cut together a sizzle reel, and we put together a deck, started shopping it around. And to be honest, I shopped it around for almost two years, got some interest. Oh yeah, we love it. Yeah, but we're not, doing, we're not doing prison stuff anymore. You know, all these network kind of feedback. Excuses. Yeah, excuses. You know, <laughs> Excuse. like, I thought it's a no-brainer for all those reasons I just mentioned. You think you have everything you need, and it just comes down to the right network, the right exec that's willing to greenlight it. And so I was about to give up, and then I had heard Fox Sports had started Charlie Dixon and Gabe Spitzer at the time had started this Magnify series at Fox where they were doing these kind of like they're 30 for 30, but it was more present day stories where 30 for 30 was more historical. These are present day stories of how sports can impact communities and people and culture. I showed it to them. They loved the project, the sizzle reel. They were attaching name EPs to the project. And so we were kind of spitballing, like, hey, who could maybe we get to EP this? And I said, well, the Warriors go in. Kevin Durant went in there this year. I was there. I saw it. And at the time, Kevin Durant and his business partner, Rich Kleiman, had started 35 Ventures and were starting to get involved in films and TV. We showed them the sizzle reel and the deck. I know it affected Kevin when he went to San Quentin and met some of the guys. And I wasn't surprised they got on board. And then Fox greenlit it and we were off and running. And then obviously Fox uh, came on board and that's kind of how it how it all started.
2: You started with a tremendous opening scene. They're, they're fighting in the yard. I'm curious, were you ever scared in that when you were in there? What was it like for you being in San Quentin?
0: When you first go in, man, I mean, you just like, you have to go through this whole protocol and cell doors clanking, but once you're in the yard, you're kind of in there, right? I mean, there was a PR officer with us, Sam Robinson, who was great, who took us around and there's guards at different stations, but there's death row, which is kind of a prison within a prison where we don't have access, but then there's the general population as they call it. That's a level two, unless the prison's in lockdown, they can go to the yard, they can go to classes, they can go to therapy groups. Education. They can play hoops or sports and all that stuff. So we come in with cameras. Incarcerated people, as as I've learned to call them, come right up to you and hey, man, what are you guys doing? Like, what kind of camera is that? Like, oh man, I have a great story to tell. You gotta you gotta interview me. You know, at first it was intimidating. You know, being in St. Quentin, being in the yard, having guys just come right up on you. You don't know what crimes they committed, but there's hardcore dudes in there. There's still a lot of racial groups in there. Places you can go, places you shouldn't go. But we went in so many times. We learned to build. Up trust. And one thing about the general population at San Quentin, these are guys that have gotten their shit together, that are working on themselves, that want to get out. They want to get mm-hmm. paroled. And at San Quentin, there's lots of programs, educational, self-help, sports, where they can learn these life skills, get employment tools, emotional tools to get right in the head, to get right in the heart, and to get a skill set where they can get employed. And so the guys you're dealing with, they're not incentivized to cause problems. They want to avoid problems so they can go to the parole board, show their track record, and then get paroled. That's a big thing to remember. I'll tell you, my eyes were w- open wide as far as like, I was talking to these guys like, this dude is like the nicest guy I've ever met. Like, I see scarier people on the streets of San Francisco every day than that I do in here. These guys were warm. They were curious. They were helpful. They were sharp talented in many ways i mean you'll see in the film whether it's music or basketball or coaching whatever it is i learned and i hope through the film you learn that you can't judge a book by its cover you can't hear ex-con or st quentin say this guy is a terrible person now look there's some bad dudes in there There there's some bad eggs there's some guys that should never ever get out of prison there's also people that made bad mistakes at a very young age and had grown up with the odds so stacked against them that you and i would have probably made these same mistakes. You know, I don't know for sure, but you understand. And then you see how they're working on themselves to try to better themselves and to try to eventually get out before they die and have a life and have a positive impact and, and hopefully stop other kids or other people from ending up like they did. So I learned that and I hope people get a little bit of that from watching q
1: We're glad you're, you're here to tell this story and recap the film. How many days were you able to shoot at San Quentin Uh, Were there any restrictions there? And then to that point of that the guys are rehabilitating themselves, I thought it was really important that you showed the other perspective when you interviewed the mom of Timothy Griffith, who Coach Cuevas had killed in that horrific... Knifing yes. after the San Francisco Giants game. So, talk to me. Uh, so, kind of a two parter there, but how many days? And then talk about yeah. that other perspective so that you we, showed, which we, I thought was important.
0: We filmed, I think, maybe 30, 32 days total, probably 24 were in San Quentin. Shooting in a prison is very difficult. I mean, there's so many obstacles as far as what you can bring in, when you can go. Everything had to be scheduled ahead of time. Everything had to run through the prison and the prison officials. And sometimes we'd get there and it'd be like, dude, it's we're in lockdown. These guys are locked in their cells. You can come in, but I don't know what you're going to shoot. So we had the crew. The crew was hired. The crew was getting paid. We would have to shift and go in and say, okay, well, what are we shooting today? We're going to shoot Scenics. Okay, this one cell block is allowed out. We can't interview the guys we were supposed to interview, so we're going to have to interview interview these other guys. And you just couldn't communicate. And so every day was like, what are we going to get? What's going to happen? Some days we'd start filming and the alarm would go off. Everybody had to hit the deck and we'd be there for half an hour sometimes just sitting there until the alarm was cleared. So you really had to be flexible and I learned how to improvise uh, and stuff like that. The good part was these guys wore the same clothes every time. They did the same routine. So, if we missed something one day, lots of times we could make it up the next day. And then, as far as kind of telling both sides of the story, that was similar to AJ's question about one's brothers, you know, but even more so in this case, because we're hearing the stories from these guys' point of view, hearing about their story and how they're trying to change their lives and rehabilitate. But I knew that the film would not hold water if we didn't get the perspective of those who were impacted by these guys' crimes. And um, there were some serious crimes they committed and lives that were changed forever. To get the perspective of one of the victim's families, the mom, whose son was murdered, it was important, and I am thankful that she was willing to talk. I think to this day, she is scarred, as you can imagine, from what happened. A split-second decision can so horribly affect so many lives. A kid's life was taken, his life is ruined, his mom and his family's they're emotionally destroyed and scarred and to this day are trying to work through it and then you have rafael cuevas who committed the crime who struggled as a youth with a lot of issues who now has been in prison 18 maybe years he's trying to he's changing his life he's trying to get out he's helping others but his life obviously impacted so where do you fall i don't know i wasn't trying to answer anyone as far as punishment and parole and this and that who should get out and when I just wanted to show that crime that nobody wins it, it devastates lives especially violent crime and that I knew as a filmmaker I, I I was important to try to show the other side especially when you're talking about this type of subject matter
2: I thought you did a great job I think that moment there telling that story was so Pivotal. like it was just I felt like I was there when he hit the glass and then he got out he mm-hmm. just told he told the story so well too but then Harry Smith and, and the way he shared his story and then the scene of him getting out like all of that was so real also yeah. I just thought that all of that came together well in telling the story
0: those interviews were so raw I mean these guys have done a lot of the work already as far as finding out about themselves and why they committed their crimes they're used to telling these stories so when we sat them down there wasn't I mean some of the guys were Avoided some of the facts, I think, and telling the stories, but enough of the guys were very open and genuine about what happened. That was powerful. And then to see Harry get out and have his mom there that day, that one day we shot from like four in the morning all the way to like 10 at night. I don't think I've ever had a single day of filming that I was so happy at the end of the day with what we got. And I just knew we just had so much unbelievable stuff as far as Harry getting out and Anthony seeing him right before he gets out and telling him to forget about this place and Harry getting his new sneakers and seeing his mom and his grandma and taking that first bite of pancakes, his first meal out of San Quentin. Like, and we were lucky in some ways, but we were also there to make it happen.
1: Very powerful moments and scenes uh, with Harry getting out. I wanted to do something for our listeners, the follow doc which you did you know, at San Quentin, sometimes for the producers and directors out there, sometimes it can leave you with shooter's remorse where you're like, I should have shot this or I should have shot that. What are some tips that you can give our listeners when you're shooting a follow doc, what needs to be captured?
0: I mean, I would say that when you do a follow doc, you know, go in with a thesis of what you want to try to get that day, prepare the crew, prepare your subjects, but then... You just know it's not going to hold up, that things are going to change, things are going to go wrong. What you thought was going to happen or was going to be great is not. But you just have to be open and flexible to shift gears and make the most of what you have. And many times you'll actually get something better than what, than what you got. Like in St. Quentin, the cue ball, we just happened to be there when that fight broke out and we were able to shoot that and work that into the story. So I would say you have to go in with a plan, try to execute the plan, but to be flexible. If something doesn't go right, unless it's just a one day shoot and you have no other chance of getting it, don't get discouraged. People don't miss what they don't see. You might, it might eat at you that you didn't get something or you missed something or the camera wasn't rolling. We're all gonna regret those moments, but you just have to pick yourself up and push it behind you. Just like they say, if you throw an interception, I guess, just put it behind you and move forward. So that happened to me pretty much on all my projects and that's kind of what I learned.
1: Awesome, we're gonna get into our third and final act. Uh, Just some quick hitters, you don't have to deep dive. AJ, why don't you start us off?
2: I'm gonna go back to a question I didn't ask you, but how did you get the name Once Brothers?
0: I came up with that title. Um, really? You know, we, we had kicked around like Blood blood Brothers, and I honestly don't know what the genesis or that spark was, but once I thought about it, because they were brothers, but, yeah, but it was no a longer.
2: Yeah, no long, perfect title.
0: And so uh it just came to my to my mind and i just thought it was a perfect title i love coming up with titles or trying to it helps kind of creatively sometimes sometimes i can't figure it out but in that case i did so once brothers it's like and, and i think it's in spanish it's like once is like once, so it's like lots of times it comes up as 11 brothers <laughs> <laughs> in spanish when they translate it so i gotta yeah. keep that in mind well we have
1: Ku coach, we have dino raja
0: Yeah, there probably was 11 of (laughs) those brothers when you get down to it.
1: I'm going to ask you, Michael, which did you prefer or what do you prefer, being independent filmmaker or being a network executive?
0: Oh, man, there's pros and cons to both. I mean, to be honest, I think even when I was an executive at Pac-12 and at Fox, I was a storyteller. So even when I wasn't actually making the films, I really enjoyed and felt that my value was in talking to the filmmakers and the production companies and just helping them with the story, the structure, looking at cuts, helping shape the edit. That's where I really, I think, shine. And being a filmmaker myself before and then working for the network, lots of times that could be an adversarial relationship. But I learned that that when you work together, it can be great. I knew that the networks needed it on time, they needed it to be good, they needed it to be on budget, they needed the deliverables. But I also understood some of the obstacles that the filmmakers make and maybe when something goes wrong and they need a little bit more money. So I was able to navigate that and help, I think, both sides. And I really enjoyed the collaborations. I felt part of the process. So whether it was the Great Brady Heist or, you know, the MLB docs that we did or the NASCAR projects where I wasn't the director, I still felt that I, Helped and didn't hinder the process. I think putting on that executive hat also has made me a better now, even a better producer filmmaker. So whether I go back to being an executive or being a staff EP, or whether I go back to directing projects, I think it it only has made me stronger. Favorite sports dot. I mean, it's cliche, but I probably have to say uh, hoop dreams. <laughs> uh, that was the fir- that was the one that really like I saw it in a movie theater you know and uh, that was the first one where I like walked out of the theater like wait that's a documentary you know I just had thought of documentaries were like just these very dry narration narrator telling you everything historical and that was like verite living with these people for five six years so I know it's a cliche but that set the bar and I think that's when it started to get me thinking of what documentary films and sports documentaries could be, they could be more than what I had known. I think that's still to this day, uh, kind of the, the North star, if you will.
1: Craziest or most embarrassing thing to happen to you on set?
0: So when I just started at the NBA, I, was, I wanted to make a great impression, you know, a young kid out of college, working for the NBA. And it was that Larry Bird home video that we were working on. So, all right, we're going to, we're going to Indiana, we're flying out. I overslept. Oh. And I overslept. And this was the first big thing for me. And I had to get to the airport, uh, like LaGuardia Airport. I can't even remember. I literally just threw my stuff in a bag and was sweating, was hyperventilating, got in a cab. And literally the plane had boarded. And this could have been, I mean, this could have set the tone for who I was as a yeah. worker, right? As yeah. a young it's PA. over. <laughs> it's over. Like he missed the flight, like yeah. basically. crap and like that could have that could have labeled me as a you know a dumb unreliable kid and i could have been logging for the rest of my life you know know. (laughs) and i literally got on the plane i remember walking and the plane was full and there was my producer jim potter's looking at me like bro man (laughs) you're so lucky you gotta you know get your shit together and so That was embarrassing. That could have been a disaster. But, you know, I was young and kids screw up sometimes. But fortunately, I made the flight.
2: We've all been there. (laughs) Exactly with the the oversleeping part, too. Like, oh, man, your heart's beating through your chest. Uh, I really don't have, I just appreciate your time, man. I don't really have any other questions for you. I really appreciate you. giving us all this time and talking to us about multiple documentaries and your wide variety of experiences. So uh, I really appreciate you uh, making this time for us.
0: No sweat. I'm happy to talk about it, guys. Um, It's been a great ride, and I'm looking on forward to the next thing. And I want to tip my hat to you guys. You guys are doing a fantastic job with this podcast. AJ, I don't know you too well, but uh, Seth, I've seen a lot of your work, commercials and docs and, you know, as a producer and shooter. And uh, sorry, we didn't get to work together at Fox too much, but I hope uh, our lives pass and we can uh, collaborate on something. AJ, as well. Best of luck. I hope you guys keep this going, and I'll, I'll be tuning in.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. Thank
0: you, Michael. Okay, guys.
1: Take care. A huge thank you to Michael for documenting his career and giving us this masterclass. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you do, we'll give you a big shout out or even bring you on. If you like what you heard, please share with your friends.
2: Stay tuned for the next episode of Beyond the Lens when we sit down with Brett Rapkin to discuss his film, The Weight of Gold.
1: We'll be back next week with another great episode of Beyond the Lens. And that's a wrap.